Today's scripture reading comes from Joshua 24, 1 through 28. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. 
And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. This is God's word. Amen. Good morning. Uh, My name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer Excuse me. Good to see all of you this morning. I know spring break is upon us, and so if you haven't left town yet, uh, you're probably getting ready to, uh, but thanks for being here. Uh, We very much appreciate that. Uh, This morning, we are continuing in the series of the Old Testament, finishing with the book of Joshua. We've spent the last couple of weeks, uh, Drew had mentioned this a few minutes ago, In the book of Joshua, we've been looking at how God has called the people to conquer the land uh, and repeating all the way back to what we've been learning since Genesis, and that is God has a mission, and he has a people for that mission. Uh, And he is constantly calling them back to that mission, preparing them for it, uh, reminding them what he's done in the past, and this passage this morning is no different Uh, I do want to give you a little bit of context that uh, we didn't include in the worship folder there, primarily because we we didn't have room. Uh, And those of you that uh, have been here before, or at least have been here when I've been preaching before, uh, I do like long passages of Scripture. Uh, Because for many of us, we probably need to be honest and say that's, that's all the Bible we've read all week. Well... At least for some of us, that may be true, uh, and others maybe not. But it's a, it gives you a full picture of what's going on here, with the exception of this. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, that's fine. Otherwise, just listen. Uh, some context. Joshua 23, verse 1. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summons all of Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and says to them, uh, I'm old, and basically just goes into a speech repeating what he tells them again in 24. But that's the context. We're at the end of the book of Joshua, the end of the life of Joshua, and we've come again to a place where God says to Joshua, it's time to renew the covenant. It's time to call the people to faithfulness again. And what we're reading about is an ancient worship service. It's a covenant renewal ceremony, but it's very akin to what we do here on a weekly basis. Uh, As we come in, 
God calls us to worship himself. He reminds us of who we are, who he is, who we are in light of that. We have a time of confession. Uh, We thank him. We hear his word proclaimed, read, and then we sort of renew ourselves as we're sent out uh, for the mission that he's given us. Uh, And what Joshua 24 is describing is no different. Uh, Incidentally, you notice that uh, we're always on for corporate worship 52 weeks a year. You notice we don't ever take a week off. I mean, it might be a different, might be a different pastor who's preaching up here uh, at various weeks and times, but you know, we don't ever say, hey, there's no worship this week, we're taking the week off, or we're going to take the month of July off. It's a 52-week-a-year thing. It's every year. It never stops. Why is that? Uh, and I think part of the reason you're going to see this morning, we continually need to be renewed, to be reminded to be called to remember the work of the Lord in our lives, in the past, so that we will, as Joshua says to the people this morning, fear him and serve him with sincerity and faithfulness. Uh, We need that. And it's a continual thing, and it's no different than what the people of Israel needed. There have been several times when they've renewed the covenant or at least been reminded of the covenant. The first time, of course, was at Sinai, when they received the law, and God said, here is what I have done for you in bringing you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, here are the Ten Commandments and following the law as it is to be played out in your daily lives, what you are to look like as my people. Uh, And then again, uh, they renew the covenant at the end of Moses' life. Uh, As Joshua's taking over, as they're on the plains of Moab, looking over the Jordan into the Promised Land, fixing to go on their conquering uh, campaign. And then right before this, in Joshua chapter 8, Joshua actually renews the covenant after they've done uh, a few campaigns, but they're fixing to go into the main portion of their uh, conquering. And in light of that, each tribe will get its inheritance. He, He says again, This is what God has done. Now prepare yourselves. So as we come to the end of his life, he's doing the same thing. He says, here's what God has done. Now prepare yourselves to live in light of this, even after I'm gone. So it's a theme, uh, a theme that continues uh, even beyond the book of Joshua. If you look in your worship folder there, there's an outline. uh, And the outline is is this. We're going to look at three Three pieces of renewal or three aspects of renewal. The first is the need for it. Okay. Secondly, what results from it? What's involved in that result? And then lastly, uh, the power for it. Uh, How do you become a person who lives in continual renewal, as I say there at the, the very bottom of the page in the worship folder? And in turn, how does that continual renewal propel us out to faithful and sincere Uh, service and obedience to the Lord, okay? So first, uh, the need for renewal. And I want to ask you this as we begin. How or have you ever had your loyalties tested? Have you ever had your loyalties tested? What were the circumstances in which your loyalties were tested? Where do you really stand? What's your stand on a particular issue or in a particular situation? And usually we don't 
have to think about where our loyalties lie until there's a pressure, until there's a threat. And when the threat bears down on us, we're called to take a stand. We're called to give an account or who you're really loyal to. A decision has to be made. The battle's waging. The battle's beginning. We're in the middle of it. And neutrality is not an option. You've probably heard that phrase before. Threats and potential to do us harm abound, right? And so when there's a threat, when there's pressure, how confident and sure of your loyalties are you then? Uh, One example, in World War II, uh, many of you know the Swiss were neutral. Uh, The Swiss territory was neutral. And so various nations who were engaged in the war would use Swiss territory to move uh, equipment and troops and uh, civilians through uh, because they didn't stand on either side. But by the end of World War II, uh, most of the nations involved in the war came to really distrust the Swiss. And the par- reality to that was no one's actually neutral. No one's really, in the end, actually a neutral party. And even the Swiss weren't because of various things that happened. And one of the major reasons for God's instruction to Joshua to renew the covenant was to make sure Israel's loyalty was in the right place. They needed to be reminded of their identity as God's covenant people. They needed to hear, once again, stories of the grace of God, the ways of God, the power of God, the protection of God, the provision of God, over and over again. It's no different than, again, what we do every Sunday morning here We read portions of God's word and we remind each other, whoever's in the front, reminding you as the congregation, whoever's leading you in song, reminding you through song. It's no different. We're reminding one another of the past power of God, protection of God, grace of God. Because when we forget those stories, what happens? We'll get to that in just a minute. All the covenant renewals begin that way. Remember the work of the Lord. The Lord, in fact, is the subject of 13 different verbs in the first 13 verses of chapter 24. You probably heard Brenda kind of emphasizing the I over and over again. There's no doubt who's at the center of the story. There's no doubt who is crafting reality, who is, who's creating Israel. In fact, there is no Israel. They don't even exist apart from God taking their ancestors out of one place, right? Verse 2 leading them to another. God took their fathers to Egypt. He rescued them from the Egyptians, brought them through the wilderness to the promised land, gave them their enemies, destroyed their enemies for them. All the way down to verse 12, it was not by your sword or by your bow, in fact. Right? God did these things for Israel that they might know he is the Lord. Joshua is saying, Israel, look, pay attention. Your God reigns. Moses, in our call to worship from Deuteronomy, says, God did these things for Israel that they might know that he is the Lord and there is no other besides him. We've been reading that refrain in Isaiah in community Bible reading over the last couple of weeks. Again and again and again, God is reminding the people, I am the Lord, there is no other. Why do we need to remember that? Why does he need to say that so many times? Well, when you forget that you've been rescued, it's the threat of where you were headed before the rescue fades away, right? 
The more powerful the rescue, the more profound and pervasive is your gratitude and love of the rescuer. In fact, the closer you are to death or you were to death, the more amazing the rescue from its clutches. It's when you have rest on every side that you become numb to the threats and you get uh, what you'll see there in your worship folder called spiritual amnesia, right? Amnesia is what happens if you hit your head really hard or you're knocked out and maybe you come to and you don't remember who you are. You don't remember your family. You don't remember your name, where you're from. And there's varying degrees of it. But the point is, you've forgotten. Well, where does that come from? Well, our tendency towards spiritual amnesia largely comes from what I would call the most powerful ism in the world today. It's not socialism. It's not communism. It's not even liberalism, believe it or not. It's individualism. And there's an article uh, written in the New York Times by a guy named Ross Duthat. Uh, He's a conservative columnist, very thoughtful guy. But he says this. I'm going to quote him a couple of times. In his article, he says, In the future, it seems, there will only be one ism, individualism, and its rule will never end. As for religion... It shall decline. As for marriage, it shall be postponed. As for ideologies, they shall be rejected. As for patriotism, it shall be abandoned. As for strangers, they shall be distrusted. (laughs) Only pot, selfies, and Facebook will abide. And the greatest of these will probably be Facebook. And he's playing on 1 Corinthians 13 there. It's It's very interesting how he does that. But his point is, all the other isms will fade away. And you do see this. They come in varying degrees. They wax and wane. But individualism is always there. In fact, our culture is training us, but even more so our children, that reality is what you create and ordain it to be. Reality in life is almost exclusively subjective. In fact, we might even say exclusively subjective. Forget the almost. The real is what I can see right, on a screen in particular, or create on a keyboard, or declare in 140 characters or less, right? I can ordain it to be so. I can create uh, something out of nothing. That is the real. And so the real is what I can see or experience and nothing else. And so in turn what happens is the spiritual realm or truths that claim absolute authority are acknowledged. They might even be appreciated But they're certainly not lived and loved and obeyed. They're not central. A close second ism is that of materialism and humanism. Because we like things, stuff, what's in front of us, what we can see and touch and smell. And of course, we're all human. And so, the human individual is what rules and reigns in the end. Duthot goes on to say this, quote, The current generation's skepticism of parties, programs, and people runs deeper than their allegiance to a particular ideology. Their left-wing commitments are ardent on a few issues, but they blur into libertarianism and indifferentism on others. The current denominator, excuse me, the common denominator is individualism. It explains both the personal optimism and the social mistrust. The passion about causes like gay marriage and the declining interest in collective action crusades like environmentalism. Even the fact that religious affiliation has declined, but personal belief is still very widespread. 
All this results in a functional atheism, right? You live as if God doesn't exist or you don't need him to exist. He's not central. He's there, as Barry described it earlier, I loved the way he said that. He's an accessory, right? Ladies, accessories, men shouldn't have very many. Uh, Ladies typically have more. But what's an accessory, right? It's just a Something you, it's a, it's a side thing. It's not central, but it's something that, you know, you take with you and you use it when you need it, right? But it's not central to who you are. So what we have is a marginal, flimsy, wishy-washy association with Christianity that many people, particularly in their 20s and 30s, and that's where do thoughts really kind of focusing in on, uh, that, that's, what, that's what describes them. It is the, the most profound motivation or the most, pro, the, the most profound source, I should say, of spiritual amnesia. And it's all diametrically opposed to the call of God. Listen to where Joshua goes next, okay? He tells the story to them in the first 13 verses. He says, this is what God has done for you and in the past for your forefathers. And currently, where you are, you are on land you did not labor to cultivate, cities you did not build. This is verse 13. You dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. You've conquered these people not by your sword or by your bow. Now, therefore, what? Fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. The resulting requirement Joshua lays out to the people is basically in light of, because of, and since everything that I've just said is true, there's a response demanded that's based on the grace God has displayed. Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness, put away the other foreign gods. And serve the Lord. He calls them to decisiveness. A very famous verse. Verse 15. Choose this day whom you will serve. Being neutral is not a choice. Notice he says. Either choose between the gods your father served. When they were out there beyond the Euphrates. Talking about Abram before God called Abram. Or the gods of the Amorites. Of the people who are, who are left here still to be conquered. Choose one of them. Which, in essence, is not really a choice because neither of them are real gods anyway. Joshua says, whose slave will you be? Will you serve gods of your own choosing? Gods who make empty promises, who let you down, who destroy you? The people would have seen this. They would have known this to be the case because of the altars and the various worship places that they encountered as they went in to conquer the land. Will you serve them, Joshua says, or will you serve the Lord who has shown himself faithful and trustworthy, who doesn't make empty promises, whose love is stubborn and unrelenting? That's the point of the first 13 verses. That's the point of even chapter 23 that we don't have time to to read or get to. It's like Joshua's channeling Bob Dylan. Everybody's got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. That's Bob Dylan. Are you kidding I mean, if he got it, well, I don't know about got it, but at least he understood that. Neutrality is not an option. 
It's not a choice. It doesn't exist. And so choose this day who you will serve. Remember my earlier question, when there's a threat, you tend to be pretty sure where your loyalties are. It, it requires a decisiveness. It requires a, a resolve. And Joshua's calling on the people to choose where they will place their loyalty. The God of the first 13 verses, the God of the Bible, he's not a divine butler or a cosmic therapist. He's not an accessory. He requires exclusive allegiance and service. He fulfills his covenant obligation, and he demands that we do the same. In fact, the idea of a covenant was a special feature of the people of Israel. It was the only one to demand exclusive loyalty and to preclude the possibility of dual or multiple loyalties. In the ancient world, most religions permitted people to have multiple loyalties, right? Different gods demanded different things, and so you kind of had your... your your smorgasbord of gods that you served and you did what each of them asked and you appeased them and tried to please all of them at once. Of course, it was very fear-based because you never really knew if you were doing enough. But there wasn't exclusivity that any of those ancient deities called the people to. Israel's covenant with Yahweh is the only one that says, you must be in relationship in covenant with me and no other. Why the spiritual amnesia? Again, because for many of us, we don't need to be decisive about God or the things of God. We don't view him as a threat. We don't have a problem being exclusive about many things, right? Not a problem. Uh, It comes with the territory for many of us in work uh, or in play, whatever it is. We don't have a problem with that, but not necessarily when it comes to spiritual things. The decision Joshua lays before us. Where are you decisive? In what areas of your life do you have no trouble being resolute? Why is it those things? Why do you have no trouble making decisions about finances, about maybe work, about uh, what you're going to do with your kids, or decisions for your kids, or leading your kids toward decisions? Why are those particular things in your life easy to be decisive about? Better yet, what causes spiritual things to get marginalized and lessened? And I would submit to you, I'd argue, chances are those are the real threats for you. The areas where you're most decisive are where real threats lie. And they in turn reveal to whom or to what you are really loyal what you're serving, who you're serving, because everybody's got to serve somebody. Now, I want you to listen to this threat. This is from chapter 23, uh, and so you don't have it in front of you, but just listen to the words of Joshua. Uh, he is he's repeating what Moses told them at the end of his life and what he's told them in varying degrees during his life too. And as he comes to the end, he says to the people, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. 
That's a serious threat. Listen, this choice, choose this day, verse 15, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Pick whichever gods you want to serve. But let me, I'm here to tell you, this is a choice between life and death. The threat is real. God's threat is real. Moses told the people in Deuteronomy chapter 30, just before his death, see, I have set before you life and death. Now, if you're not a Christian or you're unsure of where your loyalties lie, where your faith lies, whether you have aligned your life with Jesus Christ, let me say this. We believe that if you come to the end of your life and you've not chosen to align yourself with God in Jesus Christ, the Scriptures tell us you will be cut off and you will perish in everlasting exile. That is hell. Israel's threat was temporary exile from the promised land. Ultimately, they got that exile because of their repeated forgetting the story of God's grace and in turn disobeying him. But everyone apart from Christ faces permanent, eternal exile. The threat is real. And what I'm giving you today is no different than what Moses and Joshua gave to the people of Israel. I'm setting before you life and death. Choose this day whom you will serve. There's a choice, but there's also a cost. Let me go a little bit further, thinking about the result of renewal. It involves a choice, but also a cost. In Luke chapter 14, great crowds have have gathered to follow Jesus. His fame is spreading. More and more people are, are sticking around to listen in on what he's saying, following along. And because he knows the human heart, he gets to this place in Luke 14, verse 25. He turns to them and he says... If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. That's a great strategy for thinning out the crowd if you struggle with, you know, xenophobia or something along those lines. It's not very seeker sensitive either. These people are following him. Big crowd. He turns and says... Unless you renounce your very life and everything about it to follow me, turn from your old life to a new life, you can't be my disciple. Don't pretend to follow me if you haven't counted the cost of following me. But not only in Luke 14, but in John chapter 13, Peter tells Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you, Lord. And uh, Jesus turns and looks at him and says, will you? You're going to deny me three times. One commentator says, this, says it this way. Too frequently, the Jesus we present is some variety of prepackaged joy, peace, and provision that works twice as fast as aspirin. We should not sell Christ like that, but warn people about him. Our task is not to bait people into saying, I will lay down my life for you. But to get them and ourselves to squirm under his searching question, Do you love me? I was struck by that. Because there's an exclusiveness to the choice we're being called to make, serving the Lord and only Him, but it's costly too, right? You know this. Being exclusive always comes with a price. 
When you decide to you know, go exclusive when you're dating, it means you, in theory at least, don't have the freedom to date other people anymore. You're exclusive in your relationship. You don't join exclusive clubs or organizations unless you pay the cost, right? The two things are very much tied together. So, how do you get there? Where in the world does the power for renewal come from? And you've got to keep reading. Uh, the, the story is... It's pretty amazing in the way that it, that it finishes up. And we're not going to get all the way to verse 28, but I'm going to hone in on the last three or four verses here, 16, 17, 18, 19. You'd think Joshua would be very pleased with the response of the people in verse 16. They say this. He says, choose this day whom you will serve. The people say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from Egypt, who's rescued us. And the Lord drove us or drove out before us all the peoples who lived in this land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord. He is our God. It's very straightforward. It sounds great. But even in those statements, listen, even in those statements, they have forgotten. Even then they have amnesia. They've forgotten the golden calf. They've forgotten the complaining and the murmuring. They've forgotten Achan. That that didn't happen that long ago. Go back a few chapters in the book of Joshua and read about the sin of Achan and how it affected the nation of Israel. They have already forgotten that. And I'm sure they mean well, but they're not being honest with themselves. So Joshua calls them on it. Look at verse 19. Joshua says, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Joshua gives two reasons. Why the people are not able to serve the Lord. He's holy and he's jealous. And I think the holiness part we get, right? We all understand that. God's standards are perfect. He is perfect. We can't measure up. We fall short in our service. You cannot serve the Lord. His standards are too great. But what's the jealousy of God? What's it mean you are not able to serve the Lord? He is a jealous God. Well, it doesn't mean... He's humanly jealous, like you and I struggle with jealousy, that is envy, right? That somehow his pride is hurt and it results in an anger, a destructive anger, when the object of his love rejects him. What it does mean, God's jealousy, unlike human jealousy, is an angered love that commits to a person. It is bound and determined to restore them when the relationship gets broken or fractured. It is his stubborn love that is his motivation for his jealousy with those who commit spiritual adultery with other gods. And that leads to the best way to make sense of this, and that's marriage. Marriage is an exclusive commitment, right? Just as husbands and wives demand priority, first place in each other's lives, and when that's not the case, the marriage doesn't work. So God, too, is jealous for his place in our lives, Just as husbands and wives pledge exclusive fidelity to one another as they give vows and rings in a covenant ceremony, so too God is jealous for complete exclusive fidelity to him in the covenant of spiritual marriage. And lastly, just as husbands and wives give and receive intimacy in every way from one another and from only one another, So too is God jealous for us to give ourselves completely 
to him and only to him. And here's the reason that he can be jealous. Because in Jesus Christ, he has given himself completely, fully for you and I. He's proven himself faithful in keeping the covenant. Israel failed again and again. We have failed again and again. But God remained faithful again and again. Part of the point of the first 13 verses in retelling the story of God's grace. God would ultimately keep the covenant in giving his very own son, his very life, because he's jealous for you. John says in chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave. God has made it possible for us who have clung to other gods, who have committed spiritual adultery again and again, who have served ourselves to have abundant life. He's made it possible for us to choose life because Jesus Christ was faithful and feared the Lord in sincerity. All who are hidden in him can serve the Lord Our sins are forgiven in Christ. Joshua says he's a jealous God. He will not, in Hebrew it literally says, he will not go on forgiving your transgressions or your sins. But if you're hidden in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. When you come to the place of, Lord, I believe, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, then you understand something of the jealousy of God to wholeheartedly commit to serving the Lord exclusively, but still be suspicious of your own weakness, your own frailty of faith. When you join this church as a member, one of the vows you take is to endeavor by the grace of the Holy Spirit to live as becomes a follower of Christ. You vow to endeavor to strive for obedience. And that's hard. That's hard. John Calvin said this about verse 19. When the Lord brings men under his authority, they are usually willing enough to profess zeal for piety, though they instantly and often fall away from it. Thus they build without a foundation. This happens because they neither distrust their own weakness so much as they ought, nor consider how difficult it is to bind themselves wholly to the Lord. There is no need, therefore, of serious examination lest we be carried aloft by some giddy movement and so fail of success in our very first attempts. The good news of this passage is who is talking, and that is Joshua. Joshua, Joshua's name means Yahweh saves. So Yahweh saves is standing here calling the people to remember all the ways that Yahweh has saved. But another Joshua was coming. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ, because in Hebrew, Jesus is pronounced Yeshua, or Joshua. Through Jesus Christ, Yahweh does save. He saves fully and finally. And the promise is when you are united to him by faith, by his grace, he promises to make you into a person who can serve, who can serve with sincerity and faithfulness. He promises to make you into a person who limps toward obedience. You're limping, to be sure, but you're limping toward obedience, to be sure. And as we're daily renewed through the scriptures, through prayer, through connecting to his people, as we weekly are renewed by this covenant ceremony that we're walking through together today and will continue to every Sunday until he returns, Jesus Christ promises to empower us to serve him. 
to give us daily reminders to keep us honest about ourselves and our weaknesses. I want to conclude by reading something that we sang earlier. Uh, And to me, this really epitomizes the Christian life. Such a beautiful picture of what we're talking about here. And it's the third verse of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It goes like this. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Like like one of those clasps that goes around the uh, prisoner's ankle in an, in, a, in an ancient prison. Let your goodness like that fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Grant me the ability to walk to limp many times, but to walk toward obedience. Let's pray that Jesus would enable us to do that, empower us to do that, uh, as, we, as we come to this table uh, and as we seek to change our city and our world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, we acknowledge uh, that it is only by your body broken and your blood shed uh, that we are able to come to this table. You are the one who's made the way to this table. You are the one who has been obedient and served in every way, been faithful in every way where we have failed, where we've been unfaithful, uh, where we've been disobedient. And so we pray by your spirit that you would empower us this morning to choose life, but to choose life cautiously and to realize there is a great cost involved, to count that cost but to ultimately fall upon you and hide ourselves in you and ask you to seal our hearts for the courts above, to know that our wandering hearts are prone to wander, to be honest with ourselves, but ultimately to find rest in you so that we might in turn conquer and continue to participate in the mission that you've given to us. May you be honored and glorified, we pray as a result. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. And we always get to end with a benediction, uh, which is a reminder that as we go from here, he goes with us. Uh, It's another reminder that as we whisper praise, he sings a loud song over us. uh, And that is the empowering motivation. That's the source. uh, That's the fuel uh, for us to go out and accomplish the things uh, in the midst of an ever-changing world that he, the ever-constant God, has given to us to do. So receive this benediction. It may be a promise that as you go, he goes with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.